Father, I love you. You are so good. Thank you for the honor of pastoring a wonderful church with wonderful people and wonderful ladies and an opportunity to just open my heart and share today. I just pray that you would use me to share something that hits home with every person here that we could put to work in our own lives. And we'll thank you for what you do. Speak to us by your spirit. Let your word come alive in Jesus' name. Amen. As everybody knows, we are going through the book of James in Chick Connection. Today we're going to look at James chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, open to James 2. I might refer to a handful of other verses, but we're going to stay basically right there in James chapter 2. If you've got it on a tablet or if you've got your Bible, whichever it might be. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have verses on the screen. But feel free to mark up your Bible, highlight it in your tablet, whatever device you've got. I want to share some things today that I think are really important. And before I get started, I know Anne has already given you the introduction and you've already done James chapter 1. But as we go through James chapter 2 today, I want to divide it into two sections. And the two sections tie together, but I'm breaking it in two pieces because it's a little easier to communicate it and, and study it that way. At least for me it is. But before I begin, I love the book of James. I really like the book of James. But the book of James is controversial in some of the church. I know Anne's already given you background, so I don't want to go back through all of that. But James can become controversial because there's this big battle that comes out right here in chapter 2 about faith and works, faith and works, faith and works. And there's a, there's a big divide in the church. Some people like Paul's teaching. Some people like James' teaching. If you put them together, they're giving us the same message. It's just a different end is being stressed. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But I, I love James because, number one, it gives us this struggle of walking out your faith. I don't know exactly how Anne has said it. We've talked about it a little bit. But one of the things that James does is it, it challenges all of us. It challenges me. Every time I read this, it challenges me. It's like I'm reading it and then God makes me look in a mirror and say, how you doing, son? How are you doing with these things? It's challenging to me. And I think it's challenging because as Anne has communicated to you, the book of James says, okay, so you're a Christian. Live like it. Live like it. Let Jesus live through you. So today, let's look at James chapter 2, and let's look at the first part of this chapter. I'm going to walk through the verses one or two at a time. Verse 1, chapter 2, James says this, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Read that verse again. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, the first part of this chapter, James is going to talk about how our faith can be corrupted by partiality. How my faith can be corrupted. It becomes limited if I'm not careful and I become partial or anti-partial to people. Let me just give you a couple things here in this verse. The first thing James does, he points to the faith that comes from Jesus Christ. He brings up Jesus Christ. He calls him the Lord of glory. He puts Jesus in his rightful place. And then he talks about the faith that comes from Jesus. The scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word. So 
Faith comes from Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and finisher of faith. So James starts talking about faith and he starts by saying this. Think about Jesus, the greatness, the glory, the wonderful thing that Jesus is in your life. Think about that. And then think about the faith that comes from him. That's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes. The faith that God gives us to follow him, to be his children. And then I think it begs us to ask a question today. And I want to ask you, ask yourself, what does Jesus mean to me? Ask yourself that question and, and start to try to answer it. It could take you a while. What does Jesus mean to me? And then the second part of this question is, and what does my faith in Jesus, the faith that comes from him, what does my faith mean to me? I think James wants us to stop and examine ourselves and say, what does Jesus mean to me? And how important is this faith he's given me? Can I just tell you today, my whole life revolves around Jesus and the faith that comes from him. Everything that goes on in my life, it all comes back to Jesus and faith because we live by faith. But James speaks here in verse 1 of holding the faith. Holding the faith. How many of you know you hold and you carry your faith with you? You walk this faith out. It's not something that pops up here and there. It's with us all the time. We hold this faith. But he makes a statement here and begins to set the, the, the canvas, if you will, for what he's going to paint the next few verses. And he says this. Don't hold the faith that comes from Jesus, this faith that is so precious, don't hold it with partiality. Don't let partiality affect your faith. Interesting. Partiality literally means favoritism. Respect of persons. Now, let me give you a little, little illustration of this. A lot of things happen in the church world, at least the last hundred and some years, because my family goes back in the church world for over a hundred years. So I've got a little bit of history here. And they've told me a lot of stories through the years. But a lot of things happen in church life that aren't necessarily God's doing. For example, many years ago, people believed when you go to God's house, you need to wear the very best clothes you've got because we're trying to tell God we want to look our best for you. But through the years, church, in a lot of churches, it became a fashion show. Especially Easter Sunday with all the bonnets, you know. And then it began to affect the men. And then the men began to wear the suits. And then the ties. And then the two-piece suits. And the three-piece suits. And then the suits with six buttons because I'm really spiritual. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, 12, 15 years ago, if you came to a church, a lot of churches... If you didn't wear a suit and a tie, and if you didn't wear a dress, and if you didn't look just a certain way, people would look down their noses at you like, you just don't get it yet. And we would judge people by how they were dressed. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound critical because I was raised in that. I've, I've been a part of it. I understand it. But we've come to a place where we realize that God isn't all that concerned about what I'm wearing unless it's something that's indecent, then that's a different story. But the point I want to make is... Every day of our lives, even at church, we pass judgment on people. 
And they teach it. If you take a, a course on how to present yourself to people, they will tell you in the first 30 seconds that you meet somebody, they're already going to pass judgment on you based on how you speak, how you're dressed, how you look, the things that you say. Within 30 seconds, they've got an opinion formed by you. And it takes a long time to change that opinion. The problem is a lot of us have filters that are wrong. And James is saying here, be careful. As you walk out this thing of faith, as you walk out this relationship with Jesus, be careful how you view people because partiality will affect your faith. And then he goes on to, to say something that I think is really important. He starts talking about people in faith. And I think what he's saying is your faith needs to be outwardly focused, not just inwardly focused. Now, some of you say, man, if every verse is going to take as long as verse 1, we're never going to get through this. We're going to move fast here in a minute, but i got to lay the foundation for this, okay? Our faith needs to be outwardly focused. It's amazing how many Christians never consider how to use their faith beyond their own little circle of life. Beyond their own family, beyond their own circumstances, and in, in some people, it never gets outside of their own life. Faith stays right here. And what James is saying is, look, you need to understand that God has given you faith, not just for your life, but to affect the lives of other people. Now, let, let me bring it down to home here today, make it really simple. There could be, I hope not, but there could be somebody in this room whose faith is so limited, all they can think about is what they can get from God for themselves. But then there might be one or two here today that you've grown beyond that and you've got faith for your table. Those sitting at your table. And you ha I have my friends right here. I have my five, how many chairs at the table? Eight chairs. I have my seven friends right here. Don't anybody butt in. Don't anybody else get involved in this. This is our table. And I have faith for my table. What James is saying is we've got to open up our hearts so that our faith goes to the next table and the next table and the next table. And then it gets back there to where we get our food. And then it gets back over there where they do the nails and stuff. And then it gets out to the door where people are coming in and out to the parking lot. And then it goes home with me. And it's at work and it's in everyday life in my community and with my kids at school. Everywhere I go, I'm going to carry my faith. And my faith is going to be focused on what's around me and not just what's going on inside of me. That's what James is talking about here. And when you get it in perspective, the rest of it needs, begins to make sense because when our faith is inwardly focused, we limit God's purposes in our lives. And I don't want to miss anything God has for me. Now, look at verse 2. He gives us an illustration here. Verses 2 through 4. Let's read it together. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes... And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here on the floor by my feet. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He gives us an illustration. Most of us judge people by how they look. Most of us judge people by a first impression instead of judging people by the faith that God puts in us of what he wants to do in their lives. And James says if we're going to carry our faith correctly, we've got to learn to not be partial towards people. Now, look at verse number five. Listen, my beloved brethren. 
Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James gives us a reminder here. He reminds us, he says, you look at other people and you become partial. You judge people and you exclude people from your life and your circle. You exclude people from your faith. And he asked a question, did God exclude you? Does God exclude any of us? He said, isn't it true that God chose those of us who were poor in the world and made us rich in faith? Did you know some of the great revivals that have happened in the last 100 years, 200 years have started among poor people? As a matter of fact, Pentecostal movement started basically among poor people because they had nothing else but God to hold on to. And they were mocked because they were poor, they were laughed at, but eventually they moved uptown. But the point is this, it was faith that moved them forward. And God looked down and said, these people are hungry for me. They want faith. So God began to pour out his spirit and give them faith. Now, I'm sharing this for a reason. So understand what James is saying here. Ask yourself the question, has God ever excluded me because of how I looked or what I wore or what I had or didn't have? Never. Has God made us rich in faith? Can I get a bobblehead or an amen or something? Has God made you rich in faith? God has made us rich in faith. And what James is saying is God didn't exclude you, so we cannot afford to exclude anybody else. But when we judge people and we throw up walls and we put people in groups, we begin to separate them from the faith that God wants to work in their lives. Now look at verse 6, because here he's going to give us an example of what partiality is. Verse 6, but you have dishonored poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Now, he gives this illustration here, and he says, you know, it, it's easy to misjudge poor people. But then he says, there are rich people in the world who oppress you by dragging you into courts because you're Christians, you're believers, and they just want to persecute you and punish you. Let me ask a question. Has anybody ever shown partiality against you and hurt you? I was listening to a, a, a program a few days ago on the radio, and there's some attorneys talking, and they shared something about our legal system today, and they said it's kind of reached the place in the legal system in America where when people file lawsuits, Oftentimes, they file lawsuits to get money. But they said what happens is it's the person that has the most money who wins because they just keep dragging in the attorneys, dragging in the attorneys, and driving up the fees until somebody's broke and says, I can't fight this anymore, and they give up. That's what James is talking about here. Isn't it true that people have used us? Isn't it true that unbelievers have done some pretty mean things to us? And yet in the middle of all of that, God has never abandoned us. And James challenges us and says, don't look down your nose at people. Don't look down. See everybody with the same heart and the same faith so we can extend that faith to them. Now, let me ask you this question. I think everybody in this room has been hammered at some point in time by partiality. The question is, how did it feel? How did it feel when somebody really stepped on you and looked down their nose at you? Let me see some hands. Have you been through that? It happens sometimes in the church world. And it hurts. It hurts. But what he's saying here is, 
When people mistreat God's children, God notices it. And when God notices it, God takes care of his children. So he's saying to us, you need to be mindful of this. And you need to take care of God's family as well. Now look at verse 8, because I've got I to start moving fast here. Verse 8, James gives us this conclusion. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, stop here just a moment. James 1.1, when he first wrote this letter, James was probably the leader or the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. It was basically Jews. He wrote this letter to the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered abroad throughout the earth. He's writing mostly to Jews. And he brings them back to the law here. Did you know in the Old Testament, the law says, love your neighbor as yourself? When Jesus quoted that, it was from the Old Testament. But then Jesus was asked one day, what's the greatest commandment of all? He said, the first commandment is love God with everything you've got. How many of you love God with everything you've got today? But then Jesus went one step more. He said, the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you are trying to love your neighbor as yourself? You're working on that one. What Jesus said was all the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament commandments, they all are bundled up in those two commandments. He said, forget about all the thousands of rules and regulations. They're all bound up and satisfied in those two commandments, loving God and loving people as I love myself. So James points to that. And he says, if we love people, good. But if not, if we have partiality, he said, it becomes sin. It becomes sin. Then verse 10 for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What he's saying is God has given us this liberty to walk with him and to love him and love people. But if we are willing to live our lives putting people down, with partiality, that's sin in our lives. If you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of all of it. Walk in the liberty and learn to share the love of Jesus. Let me, before I go into the second, or the, the, the ending of this first part, let me share a story. When I was a young minister, I'd been in the ministry a few years, I settled down and started pastoring. I think the reason I love James is because James is written from pastor's perspective. For seven years, I traveled around the country preaching in churches. I'd go in and I'd preach a Sunday or I'd preach a Sunday through a Sunday and preach every night, you know, revival for a week or for a few nights, whatever. Uh, I traveled and preached. When you travel and preach, it's wonderful because you can preach anything from Scripture and then move on down the road. You don't have to live with the people. But when you become a pastor, you live not just with the people, you live with what you preach and teach. You get to live it out and model it right in front of them. And I think that's why I learned to love James so much. But, but i got to tell you this story. I was raised in a really old-fashioned church. Very legalistic. Very legalistic. We had a, I mean, you think the Old Testament had a lot of rules. We had like two for every one of those. We had lots of rules. Everything was a sin, pretty much. If, it was, if you enjoyed it, it was wrong. <laughs> but here's the thing. Out of that church that I was raised in. I was there from the time I was a little kid until I went in the ministry. 
to develop this thing where you learn, as the Pharisees did in, in the Old Testament, as Jesus addressed it in the New, you learn to judge people by the church code. When I started pastoring, God began to just really deal with me by the Spirit. It began to take me to the Word. God took my whole life and turned it inside out and exposed everything inside of me. And he just started going down the line. And he, did it with, he really did it with the Beatitudes. But he walked me through everything I believed, everything I'd been taught. He took the teaching on the Pharisees. He laid it all out in front of me. And for several days, I mean, I'd just sit down the altar at the church where I was pastoring. I'd just sit there and read and pray. God turned me inside out and totally changed my life. Because there was a lot of stuff that was put in me partiality you know what I started doing I found myself at 31 32 years of age I found myself sitting down at the altar crying asking God to forgive me for the way I treated people when I was 12 or 13 years old because i had been taught to treat them that way I was a better Christian I lived by the rules better than them I did this and they didn't I was in church every time the door was open they weren't on and on and on and on it went. God turned me inside out and showed me all these things. He said, this stuff has got to go if you're going to reach people and love people. Changed my life forever. But look, if you would, at verse number 13. It says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. He gives us two thoughts here. He says, the first one is judgment comes upon those who refuse to show mercy to others. Now just think about that. What you sow, you're going to reap. Judgment comes to those who won't show mercy to others. That's the word. And then the second thing he shows us in the end of this verse is, but, but if you're merciful to others, it will overcome judgment. It will keep judgment off of your life, and it'll keep you from putting judgment on other people's lives. Mercy. Everybody say mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy opens the door for my faith to begin to run into other people's lives. But I have to learn how to live with that mercy. Now, we're going to go to part two. And the subject continues, but he shifts gears a little bit. Look at verse number 14, the second part of this chapter. And like I said, I'm going to move faster in the second half. But he gives us two probing questions here in verse number 14. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The rest of this chapter, James is basically confronting one thing. If faith doesn't produce some kind of action, is it any good to anybody? If faith doesn't produce an action, if faith is only mental assent to something, if it doesn't produce an action towards God and toward others, is it any good? And the, the question he asked, the second question is, can it save you? Now, there's a lot of argument in the church world about this, so much argument. And it's sad, but can I just, can I just real quickly just settle this argument real fast? Romans 10, 9 and 10. How do we come into relationship with God? How are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. But Romans 10, 9 and 10, what does it say? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two parts to that. 
One is the belief in the heart. The second is the confession of the mouth. Sunday mornings, whenever I come to the end of the service, I always lead people in a prayer that gives them an opportunity to open their hearts to Jesus. Why do I do that? Because I don't want people to just believe. I want people to put that faith into action. Because if faith does not produce an action, we miss the mark. If it's only a mental ascent, okay, okay, and, and that's all we have. We've got nothing. Faith is a verb. It's an action word. It produces some kind of response to God or response to others or response to my circumstances. So what James is asking here, he's not asking the question, can you by works save yourself? No. No, that's not what he's asking. Put it in context and see what he's saying. Now, let me give you a little nugget here. I, I, I teach this every now and then, but let me throw this in for someone who might never have heard it. We're saved by grace through faith. God extends grace to us, and by faith, we reach up and receive it. The word receive in the New Testament almost always comes from a root word that means to take. So he extends grace. By faith, we reach up and take it. It's an action word. We reach up and we take what God's extended to us. The rest of your relationship with God will work exactly the same way. God will extend grace and a promise to you, and by faith, you reach up and take it. Our whole lives operate that way. Grace and faith, grace and faith. Now, look at, at verse number 15. He gives us, again, he gives us an illustration. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Don't you love that illustration? Somebody walks into Chick Connection, you know what? My husband just left me, took all the money in the bank account. I'm at home with the kids. We don't have gas money. We don't have food money. Can you guys help me? Oh, be blessed and go your way. And may the God of heaven put gas in your tank and food on your table. Hallelujah. Go ahead and leave. Hey, let's, let's all go down to uh, BJ's and have pizza for lunch. Are you, are you getting the illustration here? Remember, James sees faith as something that needs to be outwardly focused. Yeah. Not just, oh, well, God's blessed me. I'm going to hang on to my blessings. The best way to hang on to the blessings is to give it away, and God will pour more blessing into your life. Now, look at verse number 17. James makes a conclusion here. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have action or works, is dead if my faith does not produce an action towards God or towards other or towards my circumstances that faith is useless it's dead it's not going to produce anything it's not going to produce anything James is making a case saying look as we walk with God let's don't just get inwardly focused let's be outwardly focused and let's realize that with our faith comes a responsibility to release that faith and let it act because faith is an action word it's a verb faith without action is dead in verse 18 he takes a closer look but someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works You get the point he's making here? Well, I've got faith. I've got faith. I've got faith. Well, if you've got faith, it's going to show up somewhere. You're going to act it out somewhere. If you are a Christian, act like it. 
be one. If you've got faith, release it. Let it go out to God. Let it go out to others. Release that. Let action, let action complete your faith. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 19. This is interesting. Look, look at, as he looks closer at this, look at verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I got faith. I believe. I believe. I believe. Great. Demons do too. How many of you like to have faith greater than the demons? At least a few of you do. Hopefully we get to the end of this. Even the demons believe and tremble. But they don't have acts of faith towards God. Because real faith produces action to God. In verse 20 he says this. Do you want to know, O foolish man, aren't you glad that he addresses this to man and to men, not women? Isn't that good? But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? When he says foolish in there, it literally means empty. Empty. If I don't have some kind of action that's produced by my faith, I'm living an empty life. I don't want to live an empty life. I want to live a full life that has God involved everywhere. What James is basically saying is mental ascent alone is worthless. It means nothing to God, means nothing to you, it means nothing to anybody else. The faith that makes a difference is a faith that produces action towards God. And then he gives us some, a couple of great illustrations here of what he's talking about. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? How many remember that story of Abraham offering up Isaac? God spoke to him and said, go to a mountain. I'm going to show you where to go. Take your son. Go there. Offer him up as a sacrifice. He takes a three-day journey with the boy and the servants. They get there. They take everything for the altar, everything for the sacrifice. They're heading up the mountain. They leave the servants behind. And Abraham's convinced. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to sacrifice my son. God's going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to come back down the mountain. He builds the altar on top of the mountain. After traveling three days, builds the altar, lays his son on the altar and raises a knife. And God says, okay, never mind. Don't do it. Don't do it. I know you believe me. I know you believe me. See, we always say, oh, God knows my heart. He knows I believe. No, God knows your actions because your actions prove what you believe. That's what he's saying here. And he says, look at Abraham. Can't you see Abraham? Oh, God, I would gladly sacrifice my son, but I know you don't really want me to do that, so I'm just going to stay home here, and I want you to know I just give that boy back to you. That's empty. God said, no, no, I want you to act out what you believe. And look at verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect, complete. That's what it literally means. Faith was made complete when he acted out what he believed. In verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. I want God to be my father, but I want him to look at me as a friend. And I want God to know I believe him. Only way I know to do that is to listen to him and when he gives me instructions to obey and release my faith into actions like he asked me to do it. It says of Abraham, it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What he's saying, we're justified when our faith is acted out, not just when we say we have faith. And then verse number 25, one more illustration. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Remember the story of Rahab? The spies come into town. The government's looking for the spies. They're going to kill the spies. She takes them up on the rooftop and hides them until the, until the authorities leave, and then she releases them to get away. She hid the spies, and then they tell her, okay, gather your family together because we're getting ready to take this town, and when we do, hang a red flag out the window so we'll know which house is yours. She hid the spies. She called her family together. She hung the flag out the window, and because of the actions, she was saved wasn't because just because she believed that God had sent them. She acted out what she was told to do. It became righteousness to her. What James tells us here, and I'm almost finished, what James tells us here is faith plus action equals rightness. Faith plus my action equals rightness. Then one last verse, verse 26. Here's the conclusion James comes to about this topic. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Wow. Look at this illustration. A few days ago, I did a memorial service for Marge Kramer. A lot of you knew Marge Kramer, precious lady. This coming Saturday, I'll be doing another memorial service. The following Saturday, I'll be doing another memorial service. The first thing I tell people at a memorial service is, Marge isn't here in this body anymore. The spirit's gone. James said, when the body is separated from the spirit, when the spirit leaves the body, the body is dead. He said, in the same way, faith, if it's not accompanied by works, faith is dead also. I want to finish with one thought. It might be that you're sitting here today thinking, you know, I've been kind of believing God for this for a long time, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Can I ask you a question? Have you put your faith into action and started walking in the direction of your answer, or are you sitting on the couch waiting for God to do it? Because faith without action is dead. I'm going to pray in just a moment. But along with that thought, is there something God wants me to do about my circumstances? Do I need to take a step of faith? Do I need to put my faith into action and let my faith be released? Along with that, second question is, am I limiting my faith because I'm only inwardly focused? Maybe around my table today, I need to release my faith. Or maybe somewhere else in this room, to somebody else, I need to release my faith. Or maybe out in the parking lot, wherever it might be. Am I only inwardly focused or am I outwardly focused? Let's pray and let God speak to us. Father, I've shared your word with all you've given me to share. And it's all good. It's all important. It's your word. It's alive and it's powerful. The most important thing is what you're saying to each one of these ladies personal, individual basis. 
let this word come alive. As they talk the next few minutes, let your word come alive and let it produce action. Let faith spring up. Go to the ends of our fingers, the ends of our toes. And let's start walking in the things you're asking us to do. Change our focus. You promised if we would be focused on others and the needs of others that you would be our rear guard and we would be like a well-watered garden. God, let us get focused on those around us and release our faith for them. In Jesus' name, amen.